Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. This is the Falcoholic Podcast, the official podcast of the Atlanta Falcons on the SB Nation Podcast Network. This is Dave Walker, and on today's special podcast, we continue our review of the Thomas Dimitrov years with the Atlanta Falcons. To help me with this task, I've invited a special guest to join me on each of these episodes as we break down the trades, free agent signings, and draft picks made in the Thomas Dimitrov era. My guest today is Aaron Freeman, the host of the Locked On Falcons podcast. Aaron, thanks for joining me. Glad to be back. We are going to dive into the 2017 season. Of course, this is the uh, third season under head coach Dan Quinn and the follow-up season after their incredible run in 2016 that ended in, I I can't remember how it ended, actually. We're going to skip over that. (laughs) Yeah, I don't recall either. Yeah. Yeah, I think we all have collective trauma. Um, The the precursor to this, obviously, was uh, the, the last game, the Super Bowl, and how that ended. Um, the Falcons did end up uh, losing Kyle Shanahan, their offensive coordinator, for two years as he left to take the 49ers head coaching position. Several coaches went with him, including Matt LaFleur, the current head coach of the Green Bay Packers. Uh, a lot of fans had hopes for a quick return to the playoffs, which would happen. Um, and they hired Steve Sarkeesian. Uh, to take over the offense and to run it uh, in the wake of the loss of Kyle Shanahan. Likewise, Marquand Manuel would take over as the defensive coordinator in what would ultimately be the best uh, defensive year as far as uh, defensive rankings for the team under Dan Quinn and his time in Atlanta. Um, so Aaron, to, to kick this off, I want to talk about what happened to free agency, uh, in particular the guys that ended up leaving the Falcons in 2017. The name I want to start with because – I think this is probably the most interesting departure was former second round pick Jalen Collins, the corner uh, who had arguably a, a strong run to end the 2016 season as he played in place of an injured uh, Desmond Trufant. Uh, his playoff uh, run was maybe not as solid as as the uh, the end of the season was. Um, and he got cut. You know, I, I can't remember this exactly. I think he got cut during the preseason. Um, it may have been during training camp, but I think there were some issues about uh, suspensions and some other things. Uh, your thoughts on Jalen Collins? The you know the the fact that he was let go essentially you know well into his rookie contract. Uh, whether you agree with the move and just overall impression of that. Yeah, my recollection was that Jalen Collins, I got, I think he got sus- suspended for the second time in in two years. Yes, um, I think you're right. And the Falcons, he able, he was able to survive that suspension, and then I think he got cut once his suspension was up. Like I think he had an eight game suspension because it it ramps up or something like that. But I don't recall the exact details. But yeah, I mean, you know, I infamously was on team hey we should keep Jalen Collins around because he played so well down the stretch for us in 2016 and we might need some cornerback help I I think you know in hindsight given that 
their selections to try to address that cornerback position didn't quite work out, uh, Mm -hmm. make that take look less bad than it did at the time. (laughs) Um, So it was one of those things where that was one of the first big whiffs of the Dan Quinn era where they kind of rolled the dice on a talented but player that had maybe some questionable character stuff because he was known for not necessarily being the hardest worker at LSU, which was one of the reasons why he didn't play as much as maybe his talent indicated that he should have. And, you know, he failed multiple drug tests uh, related to weed at college, uh, not so much uh, PEDs like it was in the NFL. So, like, that was one of those things where, you know, Jalen Collins is sort of the epitome now when you look back at it of, like, you take a talented player, you have some questionable character concerns, and those character concerns wind up coming back to bite you in the butt. And, uh, you know, despite the talent that he showed and, and played with, um, you know, just didn't work out. Yeah, and I think if you go back to the 2016 season, the play that sticks out to me was the uh, the the strip and recovery of the fumble in the Green Bay game against uh, that big fullback. I can't even like, – Ripkowski, thank you. Yeah, he's disappeared to obscurity since that fumble, just about. Yeah. Um, and, and Collins, you know, he played well in in the absence of Trufant. There were many people that felt the team should have moved on from Trufant after that uh, season, uh, and and rolled with uh, Jalen Collins. But yeah, d- disappointing. And and ultimately, I don't think he caught on with any NFL teams after that. Uh, and as you pointed out, you know, when you those risks they do come with downside when you take a questionable character player from from college uh, you know i'm still in favor of giving some of those guys a chance but uh, i think jalen collins is the, the the sort of the warning shot of what the downside of those types of risks are um all right the next guy on this list and i, I know you had a stronger reaction to this than some people did uh, i did not like to see him go i know gina did not like to see him go uh was touchdown balls fullback patrick demarco who was signed by the buffalo bills um, you know, while he was in Atlanta, I think people forget he was actually uh, he cut his teeth on special teams uh, while he was here before he even really emerged as the, uh, you know, the guy at fullback. Um, and certainly under Shanahan, he really came to life as a, as a really good lead blocker and, and you know, participa- participating some uh, as well in, in the passing game. Uh, what were your thoughts on the Falcons letting him walk? They, they will obviously, you know, we'll talk about some of the guys they signed and who they replaced him with, but uh, I felt like you were not a big fan of of the team letting him go. You think? Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, man. Like this was to me like the easiest layup that the Falcons ever really had from a free agent standpoint of just like <laughs> a guy that was such an integral part of that offense in Kyle Shanahan. We, we've seen what Kyle Shanahan has done with players like Kyle Juszczyk in uh, San Francisco and how important mm-hmm. having a, a quality fullback is to that offense. Um, and, you know, given the amount of money that he wound up going to Buffalo, I think he wound up basically signing like a, a, a two year, $5 million deal, which is, you know, pennies on the dollar, especially when you compare him to how much money the Falcons spent on subsequent free agents in the following off seasons, like, uh, you know, Jamon Brown or Dante, Dante Fowler or whatever the case may be. Yep. But, um, you know, you look at that and the Falcons had a, a arguably a pro bowl, a top three fullback that was going to make a little bit of money and the Falcons just kind of let him walk. And to me, like the, the, my biggest complaint wasn't the idea that, Hey man, if the Falcons had kept Patrick DeMarco, they would have, you know, won the Super Bowl the following year. It was more like that to me showed that the quote unquote 
understanding or genius of Kyle Shanahan's offense left with him. And like Dan Quinn and company didn't really understand why and how that offense worked. Yeah. And so it was just kind of like a symptom of a larger issue of this team's lack of offensive identity that they basically spent the better part of the next four years trying to rediscover and never really were able to do successfully uh, outside of, you know, sort of brief runs at various points um, where Sark was cooking uh, in 2018. But for the most part, it was just one of those things where, like, it was just kind of a layup, a no-brainer. Just, yeah, yeah, pay that guy whatever he wants and keep a a really good fullback on your team. And that will show that you get why this offense works, but they didn't do that. And then even though, like, the argument at the time was like, oh, well, you know, as the season wore on, you know, Patrick DeMarco got less and less playing time in 2016, and it was it was more about Taylor Gabriel getting him opportunities. So they they dialed back how often they used a fullback and, and dialed up how often they used a three wide receiver set. It was like, okay, like I get it from that perspective. But then when in 2017, I'm sure we're going to talk about Derek Coleman later, but like in 2017 and 2018, they used a fullback the exact same amount. So it wasn't right. like <laughs> it was like, oh, like we're not keeping Patrick DeMarco because we're going to be using more three wide receiver sets. It's like no, we're we're just not keeping Patrick DeMarco because reasons. And it, it just never made sense to me. And you know, still to this day I'm still butthurt about it. <laughs> well, uh in fair, you know, we're here to evaluate the moves that Dimitrov made and I think that is uh this is part of it. And like you said, he he didn't leave for a ton of money. It's not like he was getting 10 million dollars a year and he was going to be this massive cap hit. Uh, he was, you know, like you said, pennies on the dollar. And I think your, your point is a, a really strong one that, uh, for a team that, you know, had to manage cap issues cause they're, they're paying, you know, some top end guys, top end money. Um, this seemed like a crazy position at which to, you know, pinch pennies when you're, you know, a year later, two years later, you're going to sign guys of free agency that are sort of mediocre, uh, offensive guards and pay them big money to come in. So, and, and this is why I wanted to do the series. Cause I, I feel like these moves, they can disappear a little bit in the light of the bigger moves, the big free agents, um, the big contracts, but letting a, a Patrick DeMarco go uh, is the responsibility of the GM and, and, you know, and the coaching staff and how they evaluate these players. So no, I, there's a reason I had DeMarco as the second guy on this list because uh, to your point, I think it's reflective of sort of the failings of Dimitrov on these small small levels, and they matter. They do matter when you're you know putting a roster together. Um, some other guys ended up leaving. Uh, offensive guard Chris Chester, uh, who ended up retiring. I think he was uh, 79 years old at that point, mm-hmm. so it made sense. Um, offensive guard uh, Ben Garland, uh, who also played a little bit of defensive tackle for the Falcons. Uh, he ended up leaving. I think he ultimately landed uh, with the 49ers. Um, Paul Warlow, uh, linebacker extraordinaire, you know, the next uh, Luke Keekley, uh was signed by the Lions. Uh, wide receiver Aldrick Robinson, I want, definitely want to get your thoughts on him, uh, ended up signing with the 49ers. Uh, wide receiver Nick Williams, uh, good old scrappy do, mm-hmm. uh, ended up leaving. Uh, defensive tackle Tyson Jackson. Defensive tackle Jonathan Babineau uh, retired, and then finally safety Deshaun Goldson. Um, so I know I went through a long list of those guys, but Aaron, I wanted to give you free reign to talk about some of these names, guys that uh, you know. Clearly, I know you have a lot of passion about the Falcons letting their best linebacker go, and Paul Warlow. Uh, but, uh, any of these names stick out to you that you want to 
put a little bit of time into uh, just because of the the nature of their impact on the team? Well, I would. I think I would correct you on one. I think Ben Garland didn't leave until after 2018. Oh, you may be right. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll go back and correct that. But yeah, I think. Oh, okay. Yep. Thank you. You're you're correct. I don't know how his name is on this list. All right, we 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 retained Ben Garland. Let's forget that name. <laughs> but uh, let's let's go through some of the others: Chester, uh, Warlow, Robinson, etc. Yeah, yeah, no, because I just have some Ben Garland takes for 2019. So that's what that's why it stuck out in my brain. Um, <laughs> have me back on then. Uh, no, but uh, yeah, man, it was it was. Now I'm blank. Yeah, Warlow was Warlow. I mean, what else? What, what do you know? Like guys, like. Like, it was fun while it lasted. There was a lot of hope and potential in, in 2013 when Warlow f- first came on the scene. And then that quickly dried up in 2014. And then the Falcons, you know, finally, eventually were able to move on from him in 2016 with, with guys like Deion Jones. So it was it was about due for Warlow to, to move on. You know, as a backup player, I think Warlow was a solid player. As a starter, not so much. Yeah. Um, Chris Chester was a solid, you know, right guard for us. Uh, you know, until we picked up Chris Lindstrom two years later, you know, we kind of had some issues at that position, largely due to the mm-hmm. fact that, you know, Chris Chester was, you could, you could make the case that he's kind of a liability in pass protection. Um, but he, he, he more than made up for it in terms of his run blocking. And that was something that the Falcons were hopeful that Wes Schweitzer would be able to figure out. Unfortunately, it didn't quite work out for Wes Schweitzer, although I don't think Wes Schweitzer was as bad as, uh, you know, maybe the Falcons. Uh, thought he was, which which is why they kept investing in guards after uh, twenty seventeen. Um, who else did you mention? Uh, uh, Aldrick Robinson. Oh yes, yes, yes. I think Aldrick Robinson losing Aldrick Robinson was a blow. Um, you know, I thought he had an underrated impact in that twenty sixteen season with his explosive playmaking skills, and I yeah. think late in the season, particularly when Julio Jones was dealing with some injuries, sort of stepped up in a major way in that forty nine er and Rams game. And really provided the boost off the bench. You know, I don't feel like losing him. You know, I think in hindsight, we kind of look back at those Sark years and like, yeah, Sark probably wouldn't have been able to figure out how to use him correctly. So it's like, I'm glad Alder Robinson got an opportunity to, you know, expand his career in San Francisco. Uh, But yeah, I felt like he's one of those sort of secret superstars that the Falcons had in 2016 was a big part of their success that year, an underrated part of their success. But understandably, given that the Falcons had Julio Jones and and Mohamed Sanu and and Taylor Gabriel, understandably, I think they made, I won't say the right choice, but made a, a, a definitely understandable choice to, to let Aldrich Robertson go given right. the pay, pay increase that he got a considerable pay increase that he got from San Francisco. Cause I think in 2016 he played uh, for a minimum contract, Tyson Jackson, um, you know, another great <laughs> free agent signing that the Falcons had that, you know, had three illustrious seasons in Atlanta. And uh, I look, what do I would say about Tyson Jackson? Definitely a whiff in free agency, but you know, by the end, if you could just sort of look away from how much he was making, like he was a decent rotational player for the Falcons in yeah. those last couple of years as a run defender and whatnot. Um, and then the one or two times each year where he would get a, a sack or something like that, you're like, oh, my God, Tyson Jackson's amazing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't think I ever said Tyson Jackson's amazing, but fair enough. Um, who else? Who else am I missing? Oh, uh, the, the the retirement Babs. Oh yes, Babs, Babs, of course. 
um you know how much time do you have in the podcast uh <laughs> we, we could do a, a babino um uh, dedication podcast at some point. Yes, twelve years of Jonathan Babineau got off to a little bit of a slow start here in Atlanta, but you know, from 2008 to 2012, you know, was second fiddle to John Abraham, a force against the run, uh, uh, underrated pass rusher, a really mm-hmm. disruptive playmaker uh, for the Falcons on that D line, an integral part of I think those d- defenses that were probably more effective and. Then people realize in in hindsight in the Mike Smith years, like mm-hmm. I, I know Mike Smith gets a reputation for being in his defense weren't good, but it was like when you actually go back and look at it, like yeah, they were actually pretty good. They were really good against the run, um, not so good on third downs, but like they were a bend but don't break defense. And I think Babineau was an integral part of that. And unfortunately, you know, by the time we got to this point in time in, in 2016, he definitely was not the player that he was during his prime, but certainly you know, a player that is one of the better uh, defensive tackles to to put on the Falcons uniform, certainly all decade worthy as he was named to that uh, last year. Um, and certainly one of my favorite players and, and certainly goes down in a, in a place in history uh, with me uh, in terms of his contributions to the team. Yeah, I think we would miss him even more if it weren't for the fact that Grady Jarrett yeah. came in and immediately had an impact because we, we would be feeling his absence, I think, uh, more succinctly than we we do. And we've been fortunate that we were able to move on from Babineau and immediately have uh, just a great defensive tackle to, to essentially replace him. Um, all right, I want to talk about some of the guys that uh, the Falcons retained, gave some new contracts and new money to. Uh, you've mentioned a few of them. Uh, I want to go through some of these. First on the list, uh, quarterback Matt Schaub got a two-year deal worth $9 million. Um, I remember at the time, fans were sort of bent, bent out of shape about Schaub getting this money and, you know, this guy's washed up and all of that. And it it feels like we put a ton of emphasis on backup quarterback for, you know, Matt Ryan, who literally at this point hadn't missed a single game (laughs) since 2009. Uh, Obviously that's changed uh, since then, but you know, Ryan has been incredibly healthy. Do you have any problems with the the Falcons signing Schaub to a two-year deal for, you know, essentially under 5 million per year? Yeah, I mean, you, we can get into a discussion whether, you know, Schaub earned that contract with his play against Seattle in 2019, which I don't think he, he did. But, like, I think what made this signing incredibly frustrating, and we'll probably get to another one, in light of sort of them not paying Patrick DeMarco, which was like Patrick DeMarco is an integral part of this offense, and mm-hmm. you're paying Matt Schaub and another player that I'm sure we're going to talk about in a bit. All this money, you're giving them these significant pay raises – and it's like, like Shab is a good backup. Don't get me wrong. You know, I, I'm one of the few people out here that's like, yeah, Shab is an underrated backup. But like, making him like the second or third highest paid backup in the league, which which is what I think they made him at this time, didn't make a ton of sense. It was like, yeah, you can you can play hardball with Matt Shab, in, in terms of contract, you shouldn't be playing hardball with Patrick Demarco in terms right. of his contract. You know, and like. I think that was a big part of why people were like scratching their head at this move. It was like, yeah, sign Matt Schaub. That's fine. Like he's a solid backup, but like, why are you paying him all this money in pinching pennies elsewhere? As you mentioned, Matt Ryan's injuries, you know, injury history indicates that, uh, the Falcons don't really need to pay premium dollars for a a backup quarterback. Yeah. <laughs> and it, we we clearly joke about Shaw being the best quarterback in uh, Falcons history, and uh, you know, tongue in cheek. But it, I'm with you. It felt like you know, 
almost five million a year for a backup for a quarterback who's never missing games uh, was incredibly rich. Now that said, you know when when Ryan would eventually miss a game in 2019, uh, Schaub came in and played pretty well, and I think he validated that he is a good backup quarterback, the kind of guy you can turn to in a pinch. But to your point, uh, it, really, it was you know why are we pinching pennies with this guy and, and overpaying for? A backup was there literally another team in the NFL that would scramble to sign Matt Schaub to a big money deal had we not signed him and I think that's where again you know we're we're evaluating Dimitrov these are his moves the, these are the contracts he put out there uh, so I think these kind of criticisms are important um, next player they kept uh, and this one I think is pretty easy for the money because uh, they had the exclusive uh, uh, Restricted free agent rights on him was uh, safety Ricardo Allen. One year deal, six hundred fifteen thousand. Um, so, any thoughts on that? Because in my in my mind, that's like that is an automatic. And I think they actually took some time to make this deal happen uh, when all they had to do was exercise it. And it, maybe it was Ricardo, uh, you know, holding out. But uh, it, to me, this was a, a sensible move. Yeah, my recollection was that. Yeah, I don't. I was gonna say, uh, you know, it's going through it in my head. I'm like, no, I don't know what I'm talking about. So, uh, never mind. Uh, yeah, I mean, Ricardo had shown himself to be a solid starter for this team. I think they were eventually gave him an ex- a long term extension the following year. Um, yeah. So, definitely a, a good move on the Falcons' part. You know, you got a a starter for you know rock bottom prices, um, and uh, yeah, unfortunately that wouldn't be a theme with every signing or resign with the Falcons. <laughs> no. Season. But yeah, definitely a great move on the Falcons part. Yeah, the next name, uh, Taylor Gabriel, uh, who you mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, they used the second round tender as a restricted uh, free agent, uh, which is worth about one year, $2.7 million. Uh, For me, the, the frustrating thing here was, uh, and I think you nailed it in what you were saying earlier about uh, Dan Quinn and the rest of the team not understanding what Kyle Shanahan was trying to do. Um, it, Taylor Gabriel just didn't have the nearly the same impact uh, he did in 2017 that he did in 2016. Obviously, you know he would end up moving on to the Bears. Uh, what are your thoughts on the fact that essentially they gave him 2.7 million, but the two the 2.5 to keep Demarco was was too rich? Yeah, I mean Taylor Gabriel was such a key component of the Falcons offense, the boom that they did down the stretch in 2016, that it made sense for the Falcons to be like, yeah, this guy's going to be a a key part of our offense. And unfortunately for Taylor Gabriel, it just hasn't been the case with him, whether it was in Cleveland, whether it was in Atlanta and and then even continue in Chicago when Kyle Shanahan hasn't been his play caller. Like he just hasn't necessarily been this big time impact guy. And, you know, that's led to people saying like, oh, like you got to scheme him open or whatever. And I think really the key that Kyle Shanahan is like, look, I treat him like a normal wide receiver and everybody else treats him like he's like this unique like snowflake or or whatever the case may be that sort of has to fit into this box. And we try to make him into something that he's necessarily not. And I just treat him like he's any normal wide receiver. And I think that's why it works in Kyle Shanahan as opposed to, to other people's scheme. And it was just one of those things where it felt like going into 2017 that, oh, yeah, like Taylor Gabriel is, is a key part of this offense and he's going to be a big reason why, you know, there's not going to be any regression under Sark. And I, that felt like the hype. And then to sort of see 
that completely, you know, fall flat on its face in 2017 and him basically just be the guy that Matt Ryan would overthrow deep passes to and, and start <laughs> on jet sweeps in, in the, at the goal line and in screens. And that was it. And it was just like, like all the creativity that we saw the year before with Taylor Gabriel and his usage. And then to just kind of see that all just kind of evaporate. And, you know, he was one of those players. I felt like coming out of 2016 was a fan favorite. So when we, kept them you know again i felt like it made all the sense in the world that the falcons had big plans for this guy's future because i I think at that time i recall people talking about yeah this guy's going to be like a long-term piece he's going to have a big year in 2017 we're going to give him a big time extension the following year and and he's going to be an integral part of our offense for five plus years or whatever and it just never worked out that way and you know I think in in the context of this offseason, how the Falcons treated Taylor Gabriel made absolute sense. But it's just another example of things don't always go to plan. Yeah. And I, I think what you said early on about them not understanding what Shanahan did was uh, it really showed so, sort of multiple failures where, you know, not having – uh, a plan for your, your offensive coordinator leaving and, and figuring out how you're going to replace him properly uh, really led to some of these signings just not working out. Whether the signings made sense or not, it, it, it shows that uh, some organizational failures uh, ultimately contributed to, to some of this. Um, all right, some of the remaining guys that they signed, and <clears throat> I'm only bringing up Courtney Upshaw because I want to refer to him as a linebacker slash defensive tackle <laughs> because that is not a combo you hear in the NFL very often. Uh, and yet uh, I was – Charles McDonald and I did the 2016 recap and we were joking about the fact that like Upshaw, I think came out uh, of college around like 260, you know, the defensive end slash uh, linebacker. And by the time he got to the Falcons, buddy was damn near close to 300 pounds. Yeah. Uh, they signed him to a one year deal worth 1.15. And he was actually a good rotational piece in 2016. I don't want to get, you know, overshadow that. Um, Linebacker Sean Weatherspoon, one-year deal, seven hundred seventy-five thousand. Uh, linebacker Leroy Reynolds, uh, one-year, one point three million, and finally safety slash linebacker Kamal Ishmael, one-year, two million dollars. Which I was a little, I thought was uh, a little bit higher than that. Um, any final thoughts on some of these remaining guys that they they kept? All of them, you know, at some point linebackers, but you know, rotated around a little bit. Yeah, I remember being excited when Spoon came back. I remember that was a big day on Falcons Twitter. It was like, oh, Spoon's back. You know, because when Dan Quinn came to town and sort of chose not to re-sign Spoon, um, that was like, what? What's happening? Um, Yeah. And then they brought him back, I think, in 2016. And then I think he got hurt that year, if I recall. One of these years he got hurt. They brought him back and he got hurt. I don't remember if it was 2016 or 2017. I think it was 2016. Yeah. Um, and it was like, yeah, Spoon's a, a solid, you know, behind Deion Jones and, and obviously Devondre Campbell are the future, but Spoon's a really solid backup, a, a veteran guy. You know, everybody loves Spoon. Like, you know, if you're a Falcon fan, you love Spoon, right? You just didn't love the fact that he, he constantly got hurt. You know, Kamal Ishmael, you know, I'm not going to go into a, a 2019 rant about this, but like Kamal Ishmael <laughs> had basically gone from a safety and then Dan Quinn figured out, like, no, this guy's a linebacker. Play him close to the line of scrimmage, he's good. Eventually, they decided to move him back for the safety for no reason. But, again, I'm not going to go into that today. Um, <laughs> and I, I thought he was a solid player. And in 2017, wound up being his best season in Atlanta when he kind of stepped in for Duke Riley and actually kind of out 
outplayed Duke Riley that season, or yep. kind of definitely outplayed Duke Riley that season and played really well for the Falcons and was sort of sort of this interchangeable piece that they played at all three linebacker spots that year and was pretty effective in all three roles. And so I think that was, you know, a, a really good move on their part. You know, Courtney Upshaw, as you say, you know, was, <laughs> I think was more fun, more memorable for all the jokes of, like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> basically you said it, like he came into the league as like a outside linebacker, 260 pound outside linebacker, and then became like a 310 pound defense <laughs> tackle. It was like, how did this happen? <laughs> That's a, that is not a normal progression. I yeah. feel like we need to say that doesn't happen often. Yeah. And like he was still playing outside linebacker at that weight, you know? So it was just like, <laughs> it was just very weird with, with Courtney Upshaw. He just had a very weird career. Um, and Leroy Reynolds, you know, they were signed to play special teams, you know, was a, a penalty machine on special teams for several years. Then oh, came God. Back. And then this year, you know, was, was solid. But uh, yeah, Leroy Reynolds always played with a lot of energy. I'll, I'll give him that and, and certainly, you know, brought a lot of energy to special teams. So he also made sense as sort of a depth piece at that position. Yeah. And uh, and he's been back a few times. So, all right. I want to talk about some of the, the guys they brought in fresh. Um, and this first name, um, you know, I remember there was a lot of excitement initially um, because of the fact that, you know, Babineau did retire and there was a connection there with uh, Scott Pioli and his time in Kansas City. And of course, we're talking about defensive tackle Don Terry Poe, who got a one-year deal worth $8 million. Um, and there were a lot of people that felt like this was, uh, you know, a one-year deal. Okay, big deal. But $8 million seemed pretty rich. Uh, this, you know, defensive tackle is not necessarily a premium position. What were your thoughts on the Falcons going out and getting Poe for uh, the middle of the defensive line? Well, first thing I'll say is I this was the last good free agent signing that Thomas Mitchell had, uh, which <laughs> I, I think says a lot about why he is unemployed right now. Um, I think I remember when the Falcons, when there was first rumors that offseason that the Falcons were interested in Don Terry Poe. And I was like, look, Poe was a really good player in Kansas City, but he's a 350 pound guy with back problems. And that's not a guy that you want to give a lot of guaranteed money to. So I actually went the opposite way when the Falcons signed him to a one year, $8 million deal and, and had a lot of incentives built into that contract with like weight clauses and bonuses and whatnot. If he made weight, um, I think that that was really a genius move on the Falcons part rather hmm. than giving this guy a bunch of guaranteed money. And I thought Poe went on to have a very good 2017 season with the Falcons. I know maybe in a lot of people's eyes, he didn't quite live up to the hype that they thought they were going to get it. Cause I, I guess a lot of people thought he was going to be like, I don't know, Damon Harrison, or I don't know what, what the equivalent of what people were expecting with that. But I thought he did a solid job in 2017 and it was a big part of why the Falcons defense was as effective that year, largely due to the fact that I think him in the middle of the defensive line was, was a big boost to the Falcons red zone defense because yeah. teams in the past would just basically, oh, we get inside the five yard line, we're just going to run it up the middle and score every single time. Um, and having a, a force like Poe in the middle meant that teams couldn't do that as much, even if he didn't necessarily live up to, I guess, other people's expectations elsewhere in, in terms of his contributions on the D line. So I thought signing Poe to a one year, $8 million deal with the incentives, with all those weight clauses, was actually a brilliant move by the Falcons. I kind of wish that they had done more moves like that in subsequent off seasons and it would have worked <laughs> out in their favor. Um, and so like, I, 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 it's all two thumbs up for me in terms of this Don Terry Poe signing, because I think this was probably 
in the Dan Quinn era, probably relatively speaking, given sort of the savviness of, of what I'm talking about, you could make an argument. This, this was the most savvy free agent move that they made the entire time. Yeah. And I think, you know, fans were excited about what Grady Jarrett showed in 2016, rightfully so, especially what he did in the Super Bowl. Um, but we did need someone to put next to him that could be more of a, uh, you know, someone that could help sh- consistently shut down the run. Um, and Poe certainly fit the bill there. Uh, and, you know, he, he would end up moving on. We would have him for just one year. Uh, but as you noted, in 2017, the, the defense was actually a pretty good unit uh, overall. Not not great, you know, not, not the kind that Fal- Falcons fans wanted. But I think we look back and forget that that 2017 unit actually won – several games where the the offense fell apart and they carried the team through several uh, games throughout that season. Um, All right, next player on the list, defensive end Jack Crawford, uh, defensive end slash defensive tackle, because I think Dan Quinn liked to use him as an inside pass rusher a lot. Uh, Three-year deal worth $10.3 million. Um, I liked Jack. I thought that, you know, he was uh, a a decent player in the rotation, not a guy you wanted as a starter. what were your thoughts on, on Crawford? Yeah, Crawford was, you know, one of those signings that the Falcons made a, a couple of years in a row where on the first day of free agency, they signed a guy and we're like, who? What? <laughs> you know, and I remember Jack Crawford from his days at Penn State and playing with the Raiders and playing with the Cowboys and, and really kind of blossomed to a, a solid rotational piece in Dallas, thanks to the presence of, of a coach like Rod Marinelli, who's, who's one of the great D-line coaches uh, of, of NFL history. And, you know, the Falcons brought him in. He got hurt that first season in 2017, but didn't really came out and really was a very productive rotational player for the Falcons in 2018, showcasing that that spin move uh, from the D tackle position. Uh, Brooks Reed also made famous here. You know, all these guys learning from (laughs) Dwight Freeney from afar, I guess. And uh, yeah, I thought Crawford had a solid career here in Atlanta, but, you know, I think was kind of. Like the bar, like I think exceeded expectations in 2018, but like the bar was kind of low. Like he was expected to be like, you know, a seventh or eighth guy in a rotation. I think outplayed that in in 2018, but like kind of when you look at the rest of his time here in Atlanta, kind of lived up to those expectations as a a low end rotational player. So I think a solid move, um, similar to kind of the move that they made the previous offseason with Derek Shelby, uh, just a a solid rotational player. And, And it seems like to me, like the Falcons habitually were able to hit on those players for the most part uh, early on with guys like Brooks Reed and, and Shelby and Jack Crawford. And I think Crawford was sort of a continuation of that. Unfortunately, that wouldn't necessarily continue after that point. Shout out to Terrell McLean. Shout out to uh, Charles Harris, all those guys. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I guess Tyler Davis, you could throw in that list. But yeah, anyway. Um, yeah, so I, I like that move at the time. I think it wound up being a positive move for the most part. I think Crawford certainly exceeded some of those expectations. Yeah. Um, all right. Andre Roberts, wide receiver, one year, $1.8 million. What's interesting to me about Roberts is the amount of success he's had since he's yeah. left the Falcons. Yeah. <laughs> but your thoughts on him at the time, he, obviously they, they brought him in for uh, uh, kick returns and punt returns and um, your thoughts on Roberts. Yeah. My, my general thoughts are mostly related to the team's plans at kick return and punt returner that they kept trying to get a, a dedicated kick returner and punt returner, and it's never worked out. Um, even though Andre Roberts, in based off of what you're saying, like in his years in Buffalo and New York, should have been that guy, but for whatever reason, it didn't work out here in Atlanta for that one season. So it, to me, it made sense where, like, because one of my bigger complaints was that the Falcons refused to 
have their kick returner do other things on their team. Like in other teams around the league, you know, Antonio Brown was a punt returner. Patrick Peterson was a punt returner. Julian yeah. Edelman was a punt returner. You know, all these teams basically like we can save a roster spot by just getting one of our talented athletic receivers or corners to return punts or, or whatever the case may be. And the Falcons are like, no, we're not doing that. We get a guy and that's his only job to do that. And like when they <laughs> signed Andre Roberts, I'm like, oh, yeah, this guy was a number three wide receiver in Arizona. Like he'll come in and he'll do that. He'll contribute on offense and he'll return punts. And it's a solid signing. Um, and I think, uh, you know, a lot of people kind of overhyped Andre Roberts because I think they were still butthurt about Eric Weems and, and his decision-making at the end of the Super Bowl. And they were like, Eric Weems is the worst. I hate him. He cost us the Super Bowl, blah, blah, blah. Um, and understandable. And then Andre Roberts came in and was fine. I felt like he probably <laughs> would have been better if the Falcons hadn't had Leroy Reynolds getting all those penalties on special teams that called back <laughs> some of his big returns. Um, and then... He goes on elsewhere and is a Pro Bowler and a perennial Pro Bowl and one of the best return specialists in the league. And, and the guy that is the exception to the rule where it's like, oh, you don't need a dedicated return specialist because those guys rarely work out. And it's like, well, except for players like Andre Roberts. And it's like, it's weird how that, like, <laughs> the curse of the Falcons or whatever you want to call it, just like they they couldn't be the team that could benefit from that exception to the rule, you know, because it's just yeah. like football gods will not allow the Falcons to succeed in, in any possible way. So that's, <laughs> yeah. that's my Andre Roberts take. Yeah. It, 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 it always makes me remember JD McKissick and the fact that the Falcons had him in here and he leaves this, you know, couldn't even make the roster. He goes on, has a run with Seattle. And I'm like, okay, of course, of course these guys leave and, and go on and uh, do something else. Um, all right. Next name on the list, fullback, Derek Coleman, one-year deal, six hundred ninety thousand. Clearly, cost-saving move. Uh, and you know, we had already talked about Demarco. I, personally, I didn't feel like Coleman was terrible, but he did feel like a step down from Demarco. And I don't think his play ever really it, the the gap was noticeable from Demarco to him. Yeah, I think you know, in a vacuum, Derek Coleman would have been probably fine as a fullback. But when you basically were coming off like three years of Pro Bowl caliber fullback play that's a massive step back and yeah. I, I think the falcons felt that yeah uh last name i want to highlight uh because i actually feel like this was a really good signing in hindsight was cornerback bleedy ray wilson one year deal seven hundred seventy-five thousand. uh and you know he was clearly uh considered a bust by his drafting team but in the role that the Falcons used him in and in subsequent years, because obviously this is the first year they brought him in, but they would bring him back, you know, for a few more. I feel like he's been actually a, a great for, especially for the money has been a great player for the Falcons and a really good signing by Dimitrov. What are your thoughts on, on Blee Ray? Yeah. Blee Ray was one of those players that the Titans had tried to turn into a nickel cornerback and he just wasn't good enough for that role. But then he gets to Atlanta and pretty much any time the Falcons, forced them into the lineup, you know, gave them solid, you know, starting value uh, mm -hmm. in, in that sense and, and really came on strong for them. I can't remember if it was 2017 or 2018 against the Vikings. One of those games against the Vikings played really well in that game. And then in 2019, when the Falcons lost Desmond Trufant at the end of that season, was kind of their best cornerback for like those last three or four games, um, you know, coming off the bench. And that was kind of the, the hallmark of Bleedy Ray Wilson. It's like, you don't really want to, he's not your first 
choice. He's not your plan A. He's not your plan right. B. But if, like as a plan C, he's he's really darn good. And I think the Falcons have gotten really good value over these last you know three or four seasons with Bleedy Ray Wilson. When basically like uh you know Jalen Collins fell flat on his face, Isaiah Oliver fell flat on his face, Kendall <laughs> Sheffield's not falling flat on his face. Uh, put Bleedy Ray Wilson in the game, and it's like hey, Bleedy Ray making plays, getting picks, you know, game saving interceptions, um, game changing interceptions against Chicago this past year. You know? So it's like. When Whenever the Falcons are forced to put B.D. Ray Wilson in the game, it seems like good things tend to happen, but <laughs> it's never how they draw it up. You know, it's like plan D or whatever the case may be, and it, it winds up working out for them. He's he's the Wes Schweitzer of the cornerback position. <laughs> they yeah. keep they keep playing him, and he plays well enough, but they keep trying to replace him, and they fail at replacing yeah. him. Oh, my God. If that's not the Falcons, I don't know what else is. All right. We have covered free agency. Uh, that was a fun discussion, by the way. Um, we're going to talk about this 2017 draft class, but before we do that, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This is Advertiser Content, brought to you by Frito-Lay. Hello, I'm Chip Murphy, here to get you ready for the big tournament. Tonight, we'll break down... We break down who will be cutting... Cut! What are you two doing? Sorry, Chip. Prez here got his feathers ruffled when I told him Ruffles has zero chance of winning the title. And I was letting Dip know that she is not taking into account Ruffles' iconic ridges. Guys, it's March. We have to start talking about the tournament. We are. It is the 2023 Frito-Lay Snack-It. We're talking about big-time matchups between Cheetos, Smart Food, Lay's, Sun Chips, and more. Just head to the Frito-Lay Snack Bracket and vote for your favorite chip, pretzel, or dip for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. This sounds great. Keep up the good work. Just go to frito No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends 4-3-2023. Void wherever hip Here's worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. We're back on the Falcoholic Podcast. This is David Walker. I'm joined by Aaron Freeman, the host of the Locked On Falcons podcast. We're talking about the 2017 season under former Falcons GM Thomas Dimitrov. We cover the first half uh, free agency. Now we're going to talk about the draft class. And obviously being in the Super Bowl, the Falcons had uh, a pick at the bottom of the first round. And they made a move uh, in that first round. They traded that 31st pick to the Seahawks for pick number 26. And they also had to give up their third round pick, which was 95 and uh, pick number 249 in the seventh round. And with that pick at number 26, they picked out of UCLA defensive end Tack McKinley. So Aaron, we know how this has played out. Ultimately, um, I want to talk about sort of the needs of the Falcons at the time the player they took and then some of the other options that were out there, because I think obviously hindsight is 2020 and we now know, you know, some guys that went after tack uh, in, in that first round, but what were your thoughts on the pick at the time? And did you like the player? Did you like the profile? Uh, what are your overall thoughts about McKinley? Yeah. I mean, the needs at the time were the Falcons needed pass rush help and they started to address that in the free agency with Crawford and post signings. We we saw in the Super Bowl that, you know, not having Adrian Claiborne, you know, the age of Dwight Freeney, the disappearance of Vic Beasley, all those various things came back to bite them in the butt because they couldn't get effective pressure on, on Tom Brady in right. the second half of that game. And so the investments that they were making, it, it seemed like from the get go, like they were going to get a pass rusher at the top of round one. 
Um, and that that particular draft, it was pretty deep in terms of edges. There was a lot of guys, you know, we'll talk about one that went shortly after the Falcons in first round. And then, you know, you have a guy like Carl Lawson in round three that went, that wound up being a pretty good player and, and still is a good, pr- pretty good player um, in the league. So it was a deep class of DN. So the Falcons kind of had their pick. And, you know, at the time, I remember thinking being a little underwhelmed with the Tack McKinley pick just because he wasn't necessarily like the guy that I liked the most at that point in time. But at the same time, like, you know, when he did his, you know, find me later thing on TV, I was like, oh, okay, this guy, <laughs> he's a crazy person. I'm on board. Like, let's see what this guy <laughs> does. Um, and, and then I think at that time, because of the team's success in drafting, particularly coming off of the 2016 draft we were giving them the benefit of the doubt so it was like okay like tack maybe not my guy but like this regime has so far done a a good job with their draft picks um and they deserve the benefit of the doubt and so obviously you know in hindsight we look back and we see players like tj watt we see players like carl lawson that have gone on to have more success in tack but you know i'm a infamous i guess tack defender i will sit here and say that i think tack's play on the football field was commiserate with his um his draft status, uh, mm-hmm. where he was taken, I, I feel like he's lived up to that 26 pick. Obviously, you know, when you compare him to TJ Watt, who's gone on to become, you know, a defensive player of the year candidate, um, you know, he looks worse in that regard and right. people will look back. But, you know, in in the Falcons' defense, I will defend Dimitrov in this case, TJ Watt and Vic Beasy's skill sets very much overlapped. Like, they were very similar players. And given that Vic Beasley was coming off the season that he was coming off. I can understand why the Falcons weren't as attracted to TJ Watt at the time um, as they were for Tack McKinley, because Tack McKinley had a little bit more of a different skill set, a more physical player, a, a, a guy that we ultimately saw was able to play inside and outside and and do more of that Michael Bennett stuff um, yeah. that we were kind of looking for at the time. And, you know, every offseason, as you I, I know, you know, DW, every offseason, we're like, this guy can be our Michael Bennett, you know, it was, <laughs> whether it was Derek Shelby, whether it was Jack Crawford, whether it was Tack every McKinley. year, every year. Right. <laughs> and so, like, I think tax skill set in theory complimented Vic Beasley's skill set, you know, uh, better than necessarily TJ Watt's skill set. Obviously, in hindsight, we understand that maybe we shouldn't have been trying to compliment Vic Beasley's skill set. <laughs> maybe we should have been trying to find a guy that could do his skill set better. But yeah, I think at the time, the pick made a lot of sense. Obviously, I think due to circumstances that weren't always in the Falcons' control nor in Tack McKinley's control, um, it just didn't quite work out uh, the way that it should have. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better. And I I want to say as well, because I, I feel like Tack gets lumped in with Vic. I, and maybe you agree with this. I think Tack uh, throughout his time was a much better player than Vic ever was. Uh, even comparing you know to Vic's 2016 season, Tack was more consistent in my mind as far as getting pressure. Uh, he reminded me a little bit of Babs where he wasn't always getting the sacks, but he was getting into the backfield. Uh, he was, you know, getting quarterbacks off their mark. Uh, he just, and you know, we saw even with advanced metrics, they were like, yeah, this guy's something's happening. He's not getting the sacks, but he's getting back there. Um, and I think it was more about, you know, maturity issues with tack uh, and, and the Falcons ultimately um, that led to him not being with the team. But, and of course the injuries, the injuries, I think just kept keeping him from breaking through, uh, but yeah, it, it, I was going to mention TJ Watt. You already hit on it. I think that's the name that 
fans are going to keep going to. And I think if you're a big proponent of uh, best player available, this is one of those situations where, like you said, Aaron, to your point, you know, if, if TJ Watt is a, uh, you know, an identical player to um, uh, Vic Beasley, you still take him if you think he is the best player. If you think he is better than McKinley, you're still taking him, even if he is quote unquote, the duplication of a player on your roster. Uh, so I think, you know, as we're talking about GMs, that may be an indication where, you know, that BPA approach would make more sense uh, in that regard. So, all right. Uh, obviously, Tack uh, has been a painful memory for the Falcons. Um, second round, they ended up trading this pick away uh, in one of the few times where Dimitrov traded back uh, in the draft. He actually traded that second round pick to the Bills in exchange for their third round pick, which was 75, uh, fifth round pick 149, and fifth round pick 156. So with that third round pick um, out of LSU, they took linebacker Duke Riley. I I just heard a bunch of fans across the state get triggered simultaneously <laughs> as I mentioned his name. Uh, to me, the the memory that stands out is this guy, um, the, the the whole stunt with the ropes towing the, uh, yeah. the big rig, yeah. the truck. Um, because that was about the only thing he did well in his time in Atlanta. Oh my God. Well, your thoughts on Riley and, and honestly, you know, again, we're doing a lot of this in hindsight, but did you like the pick at the time or did you feel like he was, uh, he didn't even warrant the third round pick that they spent on him? No, I, I actually loved this pick at the time. I will take this L. Um, <laughs> I remember comparing him a lot to Deion Jones and they both were players that kind of sat the bench for three years at LSU and then, you know, sort of signed in their senior years. And I remember with Deion Jones, like, Deion Jones had the speed, he had the range and whatnot, but he was a little underwhelming as a tackler. He was, he was a little undersized guy. And, I, yeah. you know, at the time when we drafted Deion Jones, I was skeptical of his future in which whether or not he had the physicality to hold up in the NFL. And I feel like that's still an issue with Deion Jones, but I think he's been able to overcome that for the most part uh, mm -hmm. in his career. And I feel like it's, it's funny with Deion Jones because I feel like he's kind of proven to be the exception because like every year there's a couple of linebackers that come out that are like these 230 pound, you know, speed demons, but are a little undersized. And for the most part, most of those guys haven't really hit in the NFL. Deron Lee is another example of, of one. Um, there's a couple other names that are escaping me. And like Deion Jones is kind of the exception to the rule. And I remember when Duke Riley got drafted, I was like, he's, you know, he's, he's he checks a few more boxes than Deion Jones does. He, you know, he's a little bit more physical. He's a better tackler. He's probably got even smoother hips. So he might even be better in coverage um, than Deion Jones has the potential to be. So I was, I was very high on, on Duke Riley, largely due to the fact, well, if Deion Jones is work out and Duke Riley is arguably a better prospect just because he checks a few more boxes, even if he, he may not have sort of the speed and, and upside that uh, Deion Jones has, you know, this is also going to be a, a solid pick for the Falcons. And then that first year was not great, but I was always like, you know, he's, he's you know, he's figuring it out. He's, he's going to get it together. And then, you know, 2018 happened and he just never figured it out. Um, and, you know, I think you and I discussed this kind of briefly on Twitter the other day about sort of the narrative surrounding like Mike Smith versus Dan Quinn, where like Mike Smith's regime had this reputation for not developing players, even though I think for the most part, they did a good job developing players. They just misevaluated a bunch of players yeah. and, and yeah. thought a bunch of like late round talents were going to wind up being, you know, stars, Paul Warlow, as an example, um, <laughs> you know, like, and I feel like the Dan Quinn regime 
the whole notion of like they didn't really do a good job developing players, whether we're talking about Tack McKinley, whether we're talking about Vic Beasley. But I feel like Duke Riley is kind of the epitome of that, of a player that just really showed zero improvement from year one to year three. And like you, you, you can't have that, you know, like you can't have yeah. a player kind of fall on his on his face as as much as Duke Riley did, particularly in that 2018 season where I remember you know, the early season struggles and it's like, okay, hopefully he'll figure it out. And then I think it was like the Washington game that year where he played really well. And it's like, okay, maybe Duke Riley's really figuring it out. I think the following week against Cleveland, uh, I can't remember exactly what the play it was, but it was like a play where he kind of got uh, fooled on, on, the, on the same route combination that he got fooled on in like week three that year and gave up a touchdown. And it was like, okay, like this guy hasn't figured it out. You know, that it's Washington game. Yeah. yeah. It, you know, that was a fluke or whatever. So it was just kind of like, yeah, man, like it just didn't work out. And like to me, Duke Riley kind of epitomizes like if you're going to sit here and accuse the Dan Quinn regime of not developing players, I think Duke Riley is sort of exhibit A in that argument. Yeah, and I, I think he's he's been slightly better with the Eagles from what I've heard. Uh, I haven't kept up with him as much, uh, but yeah, it, it, clearly his time in Atlanta was not good. Um, all right, some other guys that went in the third round after him. Uh, this is painful. Chris Godwin went in the third round of this class, uh, who has turned into a phenomenal receiver for Tampa Bay. Um, Kareem Hunt uh, with Kansas City went in this round. Uh, so, you know, some guys that, again, you know, if, if you're talking about BPA as a philosophy, uh, maybe those guys end up on your roster instead of this guy. But you know, it, it's the third round. I don't want to over uh, beat up the, the GM on this, but this one did feel like a miss. All right. Fourth round pick out of Oregon State, uh, the Falcons took offensive guard Sean Harlow. And I know saying that name, uh, our own writer Adnan Ikic has a has a, a, a hissy fit. <laughs> he hates this guy. Um, I, I was never particularly passionate one way or the other about Harlow. What are your thoughts on uh, that pick? At, at the time, this was probably my least favorite pick of the draft. Um, I think. Ultimately, I became a fan of Sean Harlow because I thought, like, I remember his first preseason game, and I remember writing this at, at FalcFans.com, RIP, um, that he <laughs> was, that was like one of the worst performances I had seen from an offensive lineman in his first preseason <laughs> game. And then I thought he improved after that point. And, like, I was like, yeah, okay, he, he's starting to figure it out. He just, whatever, he just was rusty or, or whatever that first game. And ultimately, like Sean Harlow was, you know, a player that wound up, you know, sticking around and and basically only now is not with the Falcons, but, you know, stuck around for like three years on the practice squad. And ultimately, I look back at it and say it was very early on that Sean Harlow wasn't going to cut it as a guard. And I feel like the Falcons should have done, you know, in hindsight, they should have moved him to center and seen and kicked the tires with him there. And, and maybe just maybe again, small percentage chance, but probably a higher percentage than him developing into a starting guard was that maybe he could have been Alex Mack's heir apparent there if they, you know, jumpstarted that development. But ultimately to me, when we look back at the Sean Harlow pick, this to me is a classic case of a reach because we knew the Falcons needed a guard and going back to the Tack McKinley selection, when the Falcons traded up at the time, I thought they were, Oh, they were going to go up and get Forrest Lamp, who was widely considered to be one of the better guards in that draft class. Forrest yep. Lamp wound up going to, the Chargers, I think in like round three or something like that. And injuries never quite lived up to expectations there. But like guard was a, a in addition to helping their pass rush, guard was a massive need for this team. And I felt like the Falcons let a couple of good guards go on day two of the draft. 
guys like Dan Feeney. Um, I remember Dorian Johnson from Pitt had some yeah. kidney issues or whatever. There was a couple of good guards. Deion Dawkins was turning a really good left tackle for the Bills. Um, and it just felt like the Falcons were looking around in day three, like, okay, we kind of need to take a guard. I guess Sean Harlow is the best one of the bunch. And they kind of reached on him at that point in time and, and probably took him a round or two earlier than they probably should. And he wound up not living up to those expectations here in Atlanta. But, uh, you know, I, I felt like maybe things could have gone a little differently if they had, you know, moved him to center. But for the most part, you know, this is another whiff on on the Dimitrov uh, uh, resume. Yeah, uh, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, I remember that draft where we're, we're watching it. We're like, are they going to address guard? Are they going to address guard? Everyone knew it was a position that the Falcons needed to address. So it did feel like uh, sort of skipping it. Um, in waiting until the fourth round uh, to address position was a questionable move. Uh, so yeah, I'm with you it, both from not addressing that need and also the fact that they, they went with this guy. Uh, you know, it, it's, I don't normally harp on fourth round picks because uh, you get into day three, a lot of these guys aren't going to work out, but you know, you, you look at this, George Kittle went at the top of round five in this draft class. Um, so he would have been available and, you know, obviously Kittle lasted to the fifth round, so every NFL team passed on him for several rounds. Um, but these are the kind of things where you look back and you say, okay, the, the, this is what we're judging a GM by, fair or not. Um, all right, fifth round. Uh, the Falcons had two picks in this round. Uh, their first pick in the fifth round out of San Diego State, they took cornerback slash safety, DeMonte KZ. Uh, and their second pick in the fifth round, they took running back, uh, out of Wyoming, Brian Hill. So obviously, Aaron, these guys have had uh, mixed levels of success. I think with KZ, it's easy to remember, you know, his really good uh, 2018 season, um, and then sort of, you know, what's happened since then. And with Brian Hill, his whole situation has been just the how he's been handled by the team. I think has been weird. Uh, what are your thoughts on t- these two players and and the value that we've gotten out of them? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I'll say is, like, I think you're right. KZ has had some really positive moments. I know my hottest take that you might hear of all the hot takes I'll, I'll give on this podcast is I still feel like KZ was a better corner than he was a safety. Yeah. Uh, right? Some of that success and the production that he had as a, as a safety, um, I just felt like the upside was higher uh, in terms of his potential as a corner. But unfortunately, the Falcons never felt that way. And, and sort of after not necessarily – you know, having that great year in 2019 in the first half of the season and needing him to go back to safety after Keanu Neal got hurt and, and Kamal Ishmael fell flat on his face. Again, it, it came back somehow. Um, I didn't force it. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it, like, so they needed him at safety and then they, they kept that going. I think Casey, you know, we due to the injury, like he just never, this past year with the Achilles tear, just like, never quite became the player that I think we wanted him to be. Like we saw the flashes and particularly in 2018, you know, the sky seemed like the limit. And then it just, after that, just never really worked out. And, you know, unfortunately I don't think he'll get another opportunity here in Atlanta. So I'm going to, I'm going to wish him the best wherever he goes. And I hope, you know, whoever picks him up winds up, he winds up turning into the player for them that he he never got the opportunity to in Atlanta. And yeah. as for Brian Hill, that was a weird pick at the time because like 
they kind of didn't need Brian Hill in 2017 because they had just given Devontae Freeman an extension and that basically locked him in through like the 2019 season. Mm-hmm. And then Tevin Coleman was on his rookie contract and he was locked in through the 2018 season. So in reality, the Falcons really didn't need a running back until 2019 at the earliest if they let Tevin Coleman walk at that point in time. Right. And what was frustrating to me with the Brian Hill selection was like, it didn't seem like the Falcons had a plan for Brian Hill. It was like, okay, like, okay, you draft this guy like two years at, before you need him. And so your plan is, does this kind of stash him for two years and maybe put him on the practice or not put him on the practice squad? Maybe he'll play some special teams, maybe not. But you're just basically, you're just going to keep him, you know, in the back of the fridge for two years and then, you know, bust him out in 2019 when you need him. And then the Falcons were like, no, we're just going to cut him. We don't, he's not going to do anything this year. So we're just going to cut him. And it was like, what? Like, I don't know. That's just a pet peeve of mine of like teams that draft players and don't really have a plan for them. You know, like the the most famous one for the Falcons is like Jimmy Williams when we drafted him in 06. Oh, man. They were like, oh, he's going to be this big time corner for us. And like, no, he's not. And then the Falcons are like, um, move him to safety, I guess. I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> and then like Jimmy Williams was never heard from again. And it was just like, yeah, because you didn't have a plan for him. And like, that was my biggest frustration with Brian Hill. Fortunately, Brian Hill was able to come back. We were able to see some of those flashes from him in 2018 with Devontae Freeman getting hurt. We were able to see some flashes from him in the last two seasons. Unfortunately, like he never really is able to put it all together uh, to be sort of that uh, consistent, reliable option on offense. But we certainly saw the flashes. So I, I look at that at his career and I say, you know, in general, like, you know, for a fifth round pick, he, he was a solid addition to the Falcons it just never really sort of came together and you know maybe some of that is owed to the fact that like the Falcons got rid of him and then he had to go to Cincinnati for a year and then come back and they just never like if maybe if they had been able to figure it out and sort of kept them in house to to fully get that development maybe it would have worked out better for them but um yeah I, I think in general Brian Hill's a in a vacuum is a solid pick, but like it also sort of signifies to me that the Falcons didn't really have a plan for him when they drafted him. Yeah. I love the fact that you highlighted that it, the, the player himself, I think out of the fifth round, you would, you would take this kind of productivity in, in general. Um, but the organizational failures, uh, felt like the bigger miss here where, as you mentioned, and, and of all the positions that you draft, running back is one of the few that tends to be able to contribute immediately as rookies. Maybe not at the highest level, but they tend to be the ones that have the the you know not as big of a learning curve. Usually, if there's a learning curve, it's in pass blocking. You know, mm-hmm. but being able to run is not like a, a difficult transition from college to the NFL. Um, so it's not like you have to draft somebody in the fifth round and spend three years trying to develop him. Uh, and there was no reason to think that between Devontae Freeman and Tevin Coleman, that either of those guys was going to suddenly just drop off precipitously in their production. So, uh, yeah, just a s- completely weird. Uh, again, as you said, I think really more indicative of organizational failures, not knowing what they're going to do with him and, uh, and uh, of course, borne out in the way that they handled him afterwards. Um, some of the other guys ended up going in this round that have been you know more productive – uh, Jeremy Nick- McNichols, uh, you know, with with Tampa, um, obviously Aaron Jones at the bottom of this uh, draft class. So if you're looking at running back, you know, those are two guys that have been actually really productive in the league. Um, and you know, again, I, I hate to harp on day three picks, but I, I think you nailed it, Aaron. This feels like 
the pick was uh, his his particular selection was more indicative of just the Falcons not knowing what they were doing. And God, I say that, and it feels like you know just saying you know, hey, water's wet. Um, all right. Uh, actually, the Falcons did have one more pick in the fifth round, the, the one that the uh, they had retained. And uh, this is the last pick they would make in this draft class out of Drake University, uh, tight end Eric Salbert. And the only thing I can say for him is that we kept waiting for that potential to be realized, and it finally didn't happen to the point where he got beat out by a tight end out of Yale, uh, <laughs> Jaden Graham, who essentially made Salbert uh, this uh, um, uh, trade bait. Uh, I think did we end up trading to the Patriots, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, any any thoughts on that final pick for the Falcons with uh, Eric Saubert? Yeah, you you mentioned it. Like it didn't work out quite with Saubert. Like the player that we were hoping he would be was what Jaden Graham was for the Falcons in 2019. You know, yeah. a, a pretty good athlete, a solid blocker. You know, I think Saubert showed the ability as in terms of athleticism and, and as a receiver, but the blocking never really came along. And so I think the vision for the Falcons at that time was like, oh, hey, he's going to be the number two and he's going to give us two solid tight ends in um, Austin Hooper and um, Eric Saubert. And, you know, we didn't talk about Levine Toilolo, um, <laughs> which, you know, was the other signing that I was alluding to after the Matt Shop thing where the Falcons overpaid for a guy. I can't time. believe I missed that. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. I just realized that. Though. Yeah. We, we didn't talk about Levine Toilolo. Um, <laughs> so, like, it was one of those things where it's like, Saubert was supposed to be, I don't know. Now I'm sitting here thinking like, why did we pay Levine Toilolo and then draft Eric Saubert? That didn't make any sense. <laughs> right? You only do one of those moves. Like now I'm sitting here like, oh, wait, I didn't have I didn't have a strong Eric Saubert tape, but now I'm like, why did we do that? Like, why did the Falcons <laughs> pay Levine Toilolo all that money? And then we're like, no, we need to get Eric Saubert. I don't know. Didn't make any sense. Now it makes even less sense. I guess we'll just end today's episode <laughs> confused as we were when we started. <laughs> It's it's amazing. Three picks in the fifth round, and two of them were essentially picks that make us look at this organization and go, "What were you doing? What were you thinking?" Mm. <laughs> oh man, if that is not uh, being a Falcons fan, I don't know what is. Aaron, um, all right, we we've covered the draft. We've talked about free agency. Obviously, uh, you know, the Falcons would end up having another winning season. Uh, I, I feel like people forget this. They they did win a game in the playoffs. They went on the road. They beat the Rams. Uh, they came you know close to beating the Eagles um, uh, on the road in that, that next week. Uh, so the season was not a, a loss. But I will say I think that some of the decisions made here, uh, as we've seen in the past, you know, as you and I talked about the last time we were together, how the, the uh, you start to see these bad decisions pile up and create issues a year, two years down the road. And I feel like we started to see that here as well. Um, so what are your thoughts on the job that Dimitrov did in this 2017 season uh, between free agency and the draft? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, maybe some people see this as a, as a reach, but I, I draw a lot of parallels to the last episode I was on with 2010 and 2017 because I felt like 2010 was like the last year that the Falcons in the Mike Smith era really were building up the team. And at that point, they kind of turned to like, OK, what's the move that we need to make to get over get us over the hump? And that wind up biting them in the butt because they the talent that they accumulated after that point just wasn't enough to 
keep that forward momentum going that they had built those first three years. And I felt like 2017 was kind of the last offseason for the Dan Quinn regime where they had that same sort of momentum of like, okay, we're we're keeping things going. And then I think after the success that they had in 2017, they did the same thing with this sort of complacency and kind of resting on their laurels. And, you know, this 2017 offseason was the last time they really invested in their defensive line, in their pass rush until 2020 with moves like Dante Fowler and Charles Harrison and, and Marlon Davidson. And I, I felt like they kind of, it's the same thing where they kind of stopped the momentum and they were just kind of like, oh, we're a good team. We don't really need to invest that much. Yep. As we mentioned earlier, they kind of kept whiffing in free agency. It's not to say that all their draft picks after this point were bad, but it was just kind of all like certain things were like deteriorating the offensive line, the pass rush, and things just kind of crumbled as the subsequent year. So I generally look at this 2017 offseason. While it wasn't a perfect offseason, I feel like for the most part with signings like Poe and Crawford and even though Tack didn't quite work out, like the thought process behind a lot of these picks was the right one. It just they didn't all quite have the long term impact that I think the Falcons were hoping for um, in the end. And I don't have as negative opinion of some of these choices that I probably should have in hindsight, despite all the criticisms that we've talked about for the last, you know, 40 minutes. Like, I I feel like their heart was in the right place in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. And I think this 2017 offseason was kind of like the last offseason where they they were building towards something. And then after this point, they just kind of got complacent. And I think that's been reflective in the team's success or lack thereof these last three seasons. Um, so I, I would generally, you know, if I was given like a letter grade or something, I was like, yeah, it's just like a, a C plus off season. You know, the, the post signing I think is, is the last good free agent signing that they had. And, and that to me is indicative of sort of the subsequent struggles that the team wound up having. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a fair grade. That's probably where I would land as well. I, I want to go back to the one thing you mentioned sort of at the beginning, and I think it's it really was what caused some of these issues. Is you know when they lost Shanahan, um, they lost the vision for the players that were important, the players and and how to use certain players. You know, losing Demarco um, and not knowing how to use Taylor Gabriel, uh, and I think this is where. You know, Dimitrov gets some of the blame, but I think you have to look at Dan Quinn and say, you know, he he turned over the offense to Shanahan, which absolutely makes sense. But when Shanahan was gone, he no longer had a vision for it. He he didn't know what to do uh, as the head coach, and you know, it it ultimately falls on him to figure out what you're going to do with the offense next uh, when your offensive coordinator is gone. And uh, clearly he had a vision for the defense, but I I think this season showed that as a head coach, um, he completely failed in keeping any kind of continuity um, in in the play calling, in the vision. Uh, And I think we would see that sort of the apex of that uh, when Dirk Cutter would be brought back a couple years later, uh, which will be a fun discussion. Uh, You and I talked about that on the previous podcast as well when we we broke down the, uh, the issues with Dirk Cutter. So. Um, all right, uh, Aaron. Again, uh, always enjoy having you on to talk about some of these, uh, you know, retrospective uh, analysis of the Falcons. Uh, and you always remind me of things that I've I've uh, personally over uh, forgotten <laughs> in in all this time, even though it's only a few years ago. Um, why don't you remind our listeners where they can find you and what you have going on? Yeah, if, if you enjoy someone spending thirty minutes talking about fifth round picks, then. You know- <laughs> 
I'm probably your your best option. Uh, but if, if if that's something that you're into, then you you probably should you know you're probably already a fan of, of Locked On Falcons. But if you're not, then check out Locked On Falcons, a daily Falcons podcast, five days a week. You know, I can't help but notice you know the Falcoholic, the official podcast of the Falcoholic, is you know up there. Uh, count of, of <laughs> shows over these last couple of years, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and accuse anybody of plagiarism in that regard, but, uh, you know, if, if you want to know, uh, <laughs> who did it first, <laughs> it's a hundred percent legitimate. <laughs> Go check out lockdown Falcons. Uh, but you know, Falcoholic DW and those guys, they, they do a great job. So they probably, you, you make the case they maybe do it better, but uh, I did it first. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I would never say I do it better. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Guys, uh, it, it, you've heard it from me before. Strong endorsement for what Aaron does. He's uh, one of the few voices on Twitter uh, in the podcast universe that I actually truly listen to and, and appreciate his opinion for being one of the few that's actually well thought out and uh, researched. Uh, as for me, guys, you can follow me on Twitter at FalcoholicDW. Updates for this podcast at FalcoholicPod. And of course, our articles daily at thefalcoholic.com. So for Aaron Freeman of the Locked On Falcons podcast, this is David Walker. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll talk with you next time.